Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. And here, Jordan's going to be in Genesis chapter 42, covering verses 18 through 38, in a talk called A New Possibility. We really hope that you enjoy and are edified by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan in Genesis chapter 42, discussing the life of Jacob. Genesis 42, and where we left off last week, our brothers had been cast into prison by this nasty and fearful Egyptian overseer who seems to have it in for them. All the other caravans, Moabite and Edomite and Midianite, Medanite, and all the others who came down to get grain, wasn't any big problem. But now this guy jumps down our throat, tells us that we're spies for seemingly no reason, and throws us into custody. When he hears we have a younger brother, he demands that we bring the brother here. It's confusing and scary. And he tells us that he's doing it as an agent of Pharaoh. As Pharaoh lives, he says, he is going to throw us into prison. This is what happens when you appeal to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh deals out death, and it seems arbitrary. But now, he comes to visit us on the third day and says... Instead of claiming that he speaks for Pharaoh, he says that he speaks for Elohim, who is the same God that we supposedly worship. And he says that he let us out. And instead of one of us going back to get the younger brother, we can all go back to get the younger brother and just leave one in custody, which is definite change for the better. And instead of all of us dying in prison so that one of us can live, now it's one of us dies in prison so that all the rest can live, which we might think about someday, but that much at least is here. And the new situation that this overseer sets before us is that if they obey God and his representative, they will live. Formerly, when they appealed to Pharaoh and his representative, we died. But now if we appeal to God and God's representative, we can live. Same man, but on the other side of three days. Well, let's read verses 17 to 20 and hear the word, and then we can look at this in a bit more detail. He removed them into custody for three days. And Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. I am a God-fearer. If you are honest... Oh, now here's the big if. They said they were honest. If you are honest... Let one of your brothers be held prisoner in the house of your custody, in the roundhouse. And as for you, go bring back rations for the famine supply of your households. Then bring your youngest brother back to me, so that your words will be proven truthful, and you will not die. And so, that's what they did. Well, he says, do this and live. Bring your younger brother. Your words will be proven truthful, and you will not die. Well, there's a couple of things here. Number one, if they don't come back and get more, Joseph knows that this is going to last for six years. (laughs) He knows, and they don't know, that this famine isn't going to stop. They're going to have to come back. So uh, they're going to have to come back, 
or else die. If they don't come back with Benjamin, they'll die. So they either come back with Benjamin or they die. So that's the test he puts in front of them. That's the pressure that's going to be on them. Some have suggested that because Egypt had hegemony over this area, that Joseph could track them down with an Egyptian army and kill them if they didn't do what he said. But I don't think that's the threat. I think the threat here is you don't know it, but you're going to have to come back and you better bring your younger brother. Or else when you do, you'll die then. But the more interesting thing about the test is it pits one brother, who's going to wind up being Simeon, but we don't know that yet. It puts one brother in the same position they put Joseph in 20 years earlier. One brother is going to be left at a pit, which is this prison, this roundhouse. It's been called a pit already. It's not a pit. I mean, it's a decent place. We've seen it's not the worst prison there is. But Joseph has referred to it as a pit when he was in it. And so now... One brother is going to be left in the pit. Well, are they going to come back and get him out of the pit? Or are they going to leave him there? It'd be easy just to leave him there. But will they come back and get him? Will they do the easy thing and leave him in the pit as they were willing to leave Joseph? Or even sell him? Will they sell him to Egypt? Remember that the text said that Joseph went down to Egypt. And then we saw that these brothers have gone down to Egypt. And Joseph went down to Egypt and stayed there. Now Simeon has gone down to Egypt and he's going to stay there. Or not. Is he going to get rescued or not? The price of rescuing is that they bring Benjamin. So are they going to be able to do that? This is the beginning of the test. In other words, we need to see that Joseph is putting these brothers in a position that he himself had been in earlier, testing them. And the first test is with Simeon. Of course, the larger test is going to be with Benjamin. Once he gets Benjamin in his hands, he'll start treating Benjamin a certain way. Now, they begin to see something of what's going on here. We can't know the psychological changes that are coming on these people in depth. But this much, we're told, they do see a parallel. The parallel between Simeon being left in prison and Joseph being thrown into a pit and sold off is obvious to them. And in verses 21 to 22, they said each man to his brother, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother, that we saw his heart's distress when he implored us, and we did not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. Reuven answered them, saying, Did I not say to you, Do not sin against the child? But you would not listen. So for his blood, now the blood is demanded. Satisfaction for the blood is demanded. Well, they recall now what they did to Joseph. We learned something here. We learned that Joseph implored them when he was in the pit. We hadn't been told that earlier. Now they have implored this Egyptian governor, but he has been deaf to their entreaties, just as they were deaf to Joseph. They have said, please, we're our honest men. We didn't come here to spy out the land. He hasn't listened to them at all. He throws them in prison. They say, please, our brother's never going to let our younger brother come down here to Egypt. He won't listen to them. So they're being treated now the same way they treated Joseph. And they understand, as I think everybody in the world does, that justice is eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That's why all the pagan religions in the world, and an awful lot of Christians tend to think, that you do a bunch of bad deeds in your life and you've got to balance them out with good deeds. Because justice is eye for eye. The problem is that there are no good deeds that can balance out your bad deeds. 
the theory of justice is wrong. But everybody knows this, and they suddenly realize that what's happening to them is what they did earlier, and that God has brought this to pass. And they're going to become more and more aware of who God is. Joseph has reminded them of God. I am a God-fearer. Because of their sins, these brothers haven't wanted to think about God very much. They go through the motions, maybe, of worship, but not really thinking about it much. Now they're going to be forced to. Some commentators have said, and I don't know how much weight to put on this, but verse 21, when it says, We are guilty concerning our brothers. We didn't listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. That The word for guilt there is the word that's often used for inadvertent sins, for sins that are not so great. We slipped. We should have done better. We allowed our emotions to carry us away. And that what Reuben does is he says, no way, guys. You did this self-consciously. You're not just guilty of slipping here. I said to you, don't sin against the child. And I tried to rescue him, and you disobeyed. So you didn't just get caught up in the emotion of the situation. You were warned when you did this not to do it, and you did it anyway. Your sin was high-handed and not just a matter of getting caught up and making a big mistake. Both of them are sins, of course, but the question is how serious is the sin in their intention? And Reuben, by saying, I said to you don't sin against the child, he brings their sin even more to pass on them. Not that Reuben has any answers to offer, but he has some condemnation to offer. Of course, some people say, hey, of course, Reuben's just trying to exonerate himself and say, you know, I try to do right as you guys that are at fault. Maybe. But the effect of it is, is to make them understand their guilt all the more. And I've got down here, and this will come up again, as always in Genesis, the firstborn son in Adam has nothing redemptive to offer. He can only offer death or punishment. In a sense, all Reuben does is make things worse. And at the end of the chapter, he's going to do it again. He's going to have these inadequate solutions that always involve death. Because in Adam all die, and the punishment for sin in Adam is death, and the firstborn son in Genesis is positioned, it doesn't mean he doesn't go to heaven, but he represents Adam. And you have to have a younger son to come along and replace him and come up with some way of life. Joseph, of course, is the younger son, who comes up with a way of life. And so does Judah. Judah also is a younger son who will come up with a way of life, a way of redemption. Reuben sees the problem. He sees the condemnation. But he doesn't have any answer to offer. And part of it is he's not in control. He couldn't come up with anything if he wanted to. He's stuck there in prison like the rest of them. Well, Joseph hears all this, verses 23 to 24. Now they did not know that Yosef was listening for a translator stood between them. And he turned away from them and wept. And when he was able to return to them, he spoke to them and had Shimeon, Shimon taken away from them, imprisoning him before their eyes. I think we need to see imprisoning him before their eyes. Made sure they, I mean, they saw it. They come in, they shackle Simeon, and they drag him off. He wants them to see Simeon being treated in a rough way, as he was treated. He wants them to identify Simeon and what they had done to Joseph years ago. Now, we know that Joseph could understand them, and what we find out 
I think we're told it here, Joseph was listening for a translator was between them. They felt like they could talk in front of Joseph because they figured he couldn't possibly understand. The Egyptian and Hebrew are not the same kinds of languages. Egyptian is a Hamitic language, and of course, Hebrew is Semitic. There's not that much in common between them. And so, they could never have guessed that Joseph would understand. And Joseph learned something new here. Joseph is learning a bunch of new stuff here. He learns he has a younger brother named Benjamin. He doesn't learn his name, but he learns he has a younger brother. He also learns that Reuben had tried to save him. He didn't know that before. He got thrown out into this pit. He was calling out to his brothers. He didn't know that Reuben had left and tried to go get help and had come back and it was too late. And he doesn't know that Reuben argued with him. So we also realize that Joseph can see that God is doing something in the hearts of the brothers. Though their redemption from sin is only in its first phase, conviction of sin. So by being able to listen, Joseph can hear that this plan is having some effect. That's encouraging, although, of course, it makes him upset to be reminded of everything. And he maybe starts to feel for his brothers because they feel bad about it now. And maybe he starts to feel for Reuben. Maybe Reuben being firstborn son, maybe Joseph had resented him the most for 20 years. And now he realizes that Reuben was one who tried to save him. And it was the other brothers who were mainly at fault. All of these things could be part of what's happening here. But one thing is for sure... He learns something about Reuben, and I think it figures in what happens next. Why does he select Simeon to be the one? If he had been inclined to take Reuben as the firstborn, he isn't anymore. If Reuben is a man who's going to stand for what's right, he needs to leave Reuben in the company of the other brothers. Joseph doesn't know that Reuben has slept with Bilhah, the concubine of Jacob. For all Joseph knows, Reuben really is the righteous brother. And if you're going to try to save all the rest of these brothers and get them to do right, better leave Reuben in their company. Don't isolate Reuben from the rest of them. They need to hear what Reuben has to say. So Joseph is not going to take Reuben. Simeon is the second born. So Simeon is the next one in order. He just falls then to Simeon to be the one who is taken. Joseph makes this decision. Now the brothers don't realize at this point that Joseph knows anything about the birth order. For all they know... Joseph just arbitrarily said, well, take him. And the soldiers grabbed him. Later on, of course, at the feast, when Joseph sets them up by families and birth, they realize that he knows more than they think he knows. But we know this. We know that Joseph knows who's who. And he's taking the second born. If the brothers reflect on the fact that Simeon is Leah's second born and Benjamin is Rachel's second born, and that Benjamin, the second-born of Rachel, needs to be brought in order to ransom Reuben, the second-born of Leah, this would be an even more scary thing. They're going to have about a year to think about all this stuff. Why did he select Simeon? He wants Benjamin. Benjamin is second-born. Simeon is second-born. Now, the commentators point out, although they get it wrong, they say, well, Simeon... And Levi deserved this because of their massacre of the men of Shechem. They were the ones who headed up. Well, that's true, but Joseph doesn't know about this either. Because, as we've seen, there's no way that event happened before Joseph went off into Egypt. He doesn't know that, but we can see the providence of God in it, so I don't know that it's entirely wrong 
that that's another reason why Simeon is an appropriate one to take. But I think that it's Simeon as secondborn is the main thing. Reuben probably would be the one he would select and say, I'll keep him here, but now Simeon. Or maybe Simeon would be the logical one all along because we want the secondborn. Well, now we have something of a test set up. One brother is thrown into a pit. What are the other brothers going to do about it? Are they going to try to rescue him or are they going to leave him in Egypt? They didn't try to rescue Joseph. They sold him and he wound up in Egypt. They don't know that. For all they know, Joseph is in Latin America somewhere. But we know that Joseph went to Egypt and now Simeon is in the same position. What will the brothers do? That's the test. Now we come to the next or the last event in the chapter. Verses 25 to 28. The journey home. Then Yosef commanded that they fill their vessels with grain and return their silver pieces into each man's sack and give them victuals for their journey. Actually, that's pronounced vittles, isn't it? Give them vittles for the journey. They did so for them. Then they loaded their rations onto their donkeys and went from there. But as one opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the night camp, he saw his silver. Behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My silver has been returned. Yes, here in my pack. Their hearts gave way, and they trembled to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? I've got down here that there's a little itty-bitty chiasm here. Joseph commands matches what God has done at the end. Because Joseph did it, but it was God who did it, and they know that. They don't know that Joseph did it, but they know that God is the one who's responsible for everything. When people are in trouble, they always know this. When they're in trouble, they say, why did God do this to me? They may not think about God for ten years, but if a car hits their little kid and the little kid's in the hospital, they say, why did God do this to me? Everybody knows when they're in a crisis situation that God is in control. And there's no doubt about it. So they know this as something, another very scary thing has happened here. And they say, what is God doing? Everybody believes in providence when they get hit by special providence. Well, I've got down here that they open one sack. You might think maybe they all went and checked their own packs, but it seems as if that's not the case. When they get home, it says they emptied their sacks, each man's silver pouch within his sack. It looks as if they were discovering that for the first time when they get home. So I think they saw this. They wouldn't need to necessarily open them all. But if they did open them all, it doesn't make any difference whether they open them all here and open them all again later. Liberals try to make a contradiction out of this, but there's no contradiction. It's just a repetition. In other words, they try to say, well, they open all their sacks here at the lodging place, and then over here it says they open their sacks, and behold, there was silver. And they were frightened. So which is it? One is a J source, and one is a E source. One is a M source, and one is a Q source. It's just, it happened twice. And probably, one guy discovered it, and the rest of them were worried, and when they got home, they all discovered it. They discovered that all ten sacks had silver in them, and they were really nervous. I've got down here, return of their silver naturally causes his brothers to be afraid. Is this guy not paid? Is he going to be even more angry with us? How'd this happen? They see the hand of Elohim, but they must also realize that the Egyptian governor, who is an Elohim fearer, has done this. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I just said the opposite, but they know that Joseph has done this. Who else could have? They gave the money to him. If it's back, it must be Joseph who did it. And 
since Joseph says that he fears Elohim, then why would a God-fearing man do this? This is, again, something they're going to have a year to think about. What's going on here? And one of the things that it's going to cause, well, we'll come to it when we see it. He really plays a dirty trick on them. It's not a dirty trick, but it's a significant trick on them by putting this silver back. But there's more. They had sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. Now Simeon has been left behind their silver return. Have they also sold Simeon for silver? Now who is going to think that they did that? Yeah. Somebody else. You'll see. We'll get to it in just a minute. Jacob. The last time a brother disappeared, all the other brothers came home with a lot of silver. And now another brother's disappeared and they all come home with silver. Jacob's already suspicious. Now... He really is suspicious. So the parallels are just mounting up. Whoa, they're being trapped. Now, I also put this down. I have no idea if this is valid, but it's just something to think about. Silver in the mouth of the sacks might even be a hint of the fact that Joseph was in a pit. The sacks were the pit and the silver is in the top. Joseph was in the pit. Silver was used to trade him out. Perhaps if they thought in that type of symbolism, they might even think that way. Maybe, maybe not. They will have a full year to think about these things and perhaps realize some of these parallels. Well, now we come to the denouement of this passage. Joseph hears from his sons, verses 29 to 38. They came home to Yaakov, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had befallen them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us, and he took us for those that spy on the land. And now we said to him, we are honest, we've never been spies. We are twelve, brothers all, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, Hereby shall I know whether you are honest. Leave one of your brothers with me. As for the famine supply of your households, take it and go. But bring your youngest brother back to me, so that I may know that you are not spies, that you are honest. And I will give your brother back to you, and you may travel about the land. So that's what they report. We don't get any response from Jacob at this point. But then it says, It came to pass when they emptied their sacks, there was each man's silver pouch in his sack. And they looked at their silver pouches, they and their fathers, and became frightened. And now Jacob responds. Jacob, their father, said to them, Me, you have made childless. And I know that's probably not what your Bible says. It says you've left me bereft or you bereaved me. But literally, it's you've made me childless. What do you think that means? Well, Joseph and Benjamin are gone, but why would he say you made me childless? Here are all of his sons standing in front of him. He just disowned all his sons. He just disowned them all. See, that's what tells you Jacob has some, his suspicions against these guys have now grown to the point where you're not my sons anymore. I'm childless. Benjamin's all I have. The rest of you... You're out. Well, that's possible. But I think that the rejection of the family is the main thing here. Of course, in any historical situation, you've got multiple causalities. And so that's an entirely possible as part of his thinking. Uh-huh. Well, you're thinking that this is not simply... Uh... Something expresses a grief that probably later on in the question would say, well, I'm sorry I said that. 
You're suggesting that this is a commitment kind of statement. Well, I can't know for sure how much of a commitment it is, but it seems to be followed up in the language. We'll look at it. Yeah, it doesn't read like Jacob read his garment and said, May the Lord do so to me and more also if I ever consider you my sons again. It's not that language. But it certainly implies that the estrangement between Jacob and his sons has now reached a new level. I'm childless. You guys don't count anymore. This is the force of the expression. We'll come back to it. Let's finish reading it. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Now you would take Benjamin upon me as all this come. Reuben said to his father, saying, My two sons you may put to death if I don't bring him back to you. Well, that's cold comfort, isn't it? Place him in my hands, and I myself will return him to you. But he said, My son is not to go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. See, it's not your brother will not go down, your brother is dead. It's The language here isolates them from Jacob's family. My son, the only son I have left. You guys aren't sons. His brother is dead. He's not your brother. I've separated you from my clan. He alone is left. You don't count. You're not sons anymore. At least at an emotional level, that's what's operating here. Should harm befall him on the journey on which you're going, you would bring down my gray hair in grief to Sheol. Verses 29 to 34, the brothers recount the events. There aren't any significant distinctions here. Some of the commentators try to say, well, look, at they left out about being thrown into prison for three days. They didn't give a full account. Well, I don't know that we can say that. I'm sure this conversation lasted a while. I don't think they walked in and said precisely these words. They gave a full report. We're getting a summary of it here. And there doesn't seem to be any significant change between the summary here and what actually happened. It doesn't look as if they tried to deceive Jacob in the least. So I think that we have to say they gave an honest recounting of the events. But it is pointed out in the commentators, and I think correctly, that Jacob doesn't have any response to this. The story sounds reasonable, except that he might begin to notice that Simeon isn't there. And, of course, he does notice that Simeon isn't there, but he has no reason to doubt their story. They go there, and this tyrannical, arbitrary guy says, Hey, I'd like to see your younger brother. Who knows? Gosh, the man might be a homosexual who wants to make use of this younger brother. We don't know what he is. But he says he fears God anyway, and so that's hopeful, but... It's a pretty scary situation, and they come back and they say all this, and the story has credibility until it turns out they've still got the silver. And as I said, that's happened once before. They came back with this story about Joseph, but Jacob happens to notice that these brothers seem to have some extra silver, and of course word gets around. So now he is very suspicious. And now it's apparent that all the money has been returned. If they didn't know all the money had been returned, they now know it is. So it now looks like, instead of, what do you think those brothers did when they were in Egypt? Did they trade the silver for grain? No, they sold Simeon into slavery to get the grain and kept the silver for themselves. That's what Jacob thinks. And in fact, that's what Joseph has made them do. (laughs) They've sold Simeon, and so they get to keep their money. Just as they sold Joseph for silver, so they've sold Simeon for silver. They get to keep their silver because they sold Simeon instead. Simeon was the price for all this grain they brought back. That's the way it looks. And Jacob has had it with them. They've been bad sons for a long time, murdering the people at Shechem and doing all this other stuff. He suspected them of Joseph. Now it looks even worse. He doesn't think they're honest at all. So he responds here. 
Each time a brother disappears, the others return home with lots of silver. Clearly, Jacob suspects them and their whole story. This whole story may be a pack of lies. He blames them. He says, you have done this to me. He disowns them. You have made me childless, which is what the word bereft means in Hebrew. It means to cut off children, to be left childless. And I've got down the rift between Jacob and his sons now seems to be complete. Israel no longer exists. Israel is the name that means Jacob together with his sons, and that's just totally broken apart now. And we looked at that theme before, how the name Israel stops being used when Joseph is sold, and Jacob starts to become suspicious of the brothers, because he grieves and refuses to be comforted, and he's alienated from them. And then the name Jacob is used here at the beginning, and he doesn't trust the brothers. He won't send Benjamin down with the brothers because he doesn't trust them. And now, at the end of the story, it's gotten much worse than that. He not only doesn't trust them, but he's pretty much disowning them at this point. Of course, they're all grown now. They're all in their 20s or 30s. But he's pretty much disowning them. You're not sons anymore. And again, whether we take this and strictly, he calls in somebody and says, record this document and I will seal it. These are no longer my sons. They no longer inherit. I don't think that's happening. But the language here is showing alienation much greater. And this will stop when Judah offers to die in the next chapter. Jacob's response corroborates our suspicion that he did not send Benjamin to the first place because he suspected the brothers of having done something to Joseph. Uh-huh. Well, I don't think he was that young. Benjamin's probably about 15, so he could hold his own. I'm sure there's complex lots of reasons here, but the way the passage starts out implies that Benjamin could easily have gone along with him, but Jacob didn't send him because he was afraid something would happen to him. So that seems to be the primary thing. There's always multiple causality. So I wouldn't exclude that. You know, he's the favorite son. He wants to keep him around. He's younger, so forth. I'm sure that's all part of it. But the thing that's pointed to is that. Now, why does Reuben say this? Well, he's responding to the situation. He's trying to assure Jacob that the story's true. He says, look, Dad, please, this story is true. You don't believe me? Here are my two teenage sons over here. They're probably 15 and 17 years old at this point, maybe even 20. I swear to you that we're telling the truth. And my two sons here are surety for it. Let me take Benjamin back down there and rescue Simeon. See, at this point, they don't know that they've got to go down there and get grain. They may never need to go down and get grain again. This famine might end in two months. might start to rain. The desert may blossom like a rose. We may have crops. We may never need to go back to Egypt again. But Reuben wants to go back and rescue Simeon. So Reuben is not, not really a bad guy. He's just an inadequate guy. He doesn't have a real good plan here. But he says, look, we've got to go back and rescue Simeon. Well, let me take Benjamin back with me, and here are my two sons. I'm promising you this is a true story. Dad, and you can put my two sons to death if I don't bring Benjamin and Simeon back. If I don't bring Benjamin back, you can put my sons to death. So he's trying to assure Jacob that the story is true. He's trying to 
figure out a way to do something that's right. And I think Reuben is in a better moral position in some ways than the other brothers. He is the only brother who was not involved in selling Joseph. Of the older brothers, I think the ones younger than Joseph probably weren't involved. But the leaders of the clan here, he has some moral standing. He can make that statement. But I don't think Jacob trusts Reuben either. Because by this time, Reuben has already gotten involved with Jacob's concubine. We know that's already happened because we're just about to go to Egypt, and that happened before we go to Egypt. Jacob heard about it. Jacob was displeased. Reuben doesn't have a whole lot of standing with Jacob either, so Jacob's not going to trust him. So he can't trust Reuben. We're in kind of a box here. None of the other brothers have got the moral standing to make an offer because they're all consumed with guilt over the whole situation. The only one who doesn't feel terribly guilty about it all is Reuben because he wasn't involved in selling Joseph. So he steps forward with a stupid plan, but Jacob can't listen to him either because Reuben has already compromised himself in another area. So there's no solution to this at the present. We're going to have to have another solution, and that's when Judah basically offers his own life. Now we can say a bit more about this. Reuben's offer seems magnanimous. But it's foolish. He's not showing the wisdom of the firstborn leader of the clan should have. This is a reverse of the intricate wisdom that Joseph is displaying throughout this narrative, and the reasons are obvious. Joseph works out this very skillful plan to bring the brothers around to repentance and thereby save the situation and heal all these rifts, brother against brother and children against father and father against children and all the rest. Reuben, Reuben thinks he's got a plan here, but what good is it? Why would Jacob want to see two of his grandchildren killed? How would this help? If Reuben goes down there and Benjamin is lost, gee, now I get to kill two of my grandchildren too. That's no solution. It's just stupid. It's not very bright. And then, of course, the contrast is going to come about ten verses from now when Judah says, I will die if I don't bring him back. You can put me to death. Well, now that's much more realistic. That's a better offer. It shows you're not willing to put somebody else to death for your sins, but you're willing to die for your own self for your sins. And that starts the healing process, as we'll see. So at the end of this chapter, the conflict in this family has gotten much worse, although the way in which it can be resolved has begun to be set out. At the beginning, the brothers were at odds with each other. Jacob is at odds with them. And now the family is pretty much torn apart. Verse 38. My son is not to go down with you. This is the only son Jacob has left since he's disowned the rest of them. His brother is dead. Doesn't say your brother. The brothers are disowned. Joseph's not their brother anymore. He alone is left. Should harm befall him on the journey on which you are going? He sees that they will be going back. They'll go back to get Simeon at some point, and they may have to go back to get grain, which, of course, turns out to be the case. And they're going to go back, but they won't be going with Benjamin, he tells them. You got into this mess, and you can get out of it yourselves. You're not taking my only son to buy your way out of the trouble that you got yourselves into. It's his attitude. And then he says, you will bring my gray hair in grief to Sheol. So... Death is what's involved here. What is Sheol? Sheol means the grave. It also means the afterlife, the place of departed spirits, where spirits go to await the resurrection. 
And we know that they understood the resurrection. They didn't know exactly how it was going to work out, and they knew that when people died, they went and became shades somehow in paradise or Abram's bosom. Different names for it are used, but basically it means death and the grave. And at the beginning, he was afraid of death. And in the middle of it, Joseph says, do this and live. He sent them down there to get rations so that we may live and not die. They come back and they bring death. Much more death instead of life. They get bread, but the situation is much more dead. So death and life are the main things here. And their situation in Jacob's family has gone more and more into death. But we know that a way of life is beginning for them and they will be brought by the Holy Spirit to take it. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.